The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Alongside Irish communities towards a low carbon future, we pledge to do more. We're joined now by Dr Ruth Freeman, Director of Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland. And we have a number of topics in the green scene which we may or may not get to because the biggest topic on the green agenda has got to be COP28. Yeah, that's right. There was great cheering this morning at the COP after weeks and weeks of negotiation because an agreement has been reached. Um, but I guess the question is, how good is that agreement and, 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 and how, how much progress have we actually made? Mm. Uh, tripling renewable energy capacity globally and doubling the global average annual rate of energy inf- efficiency improvements by 2030. That's a lovely ambition. No, no mechanisms indicated there. No, and I suppose that's not the way COP has worked in the past. You know, company, countries are there and they are agreeing to sign up to the targets that, that are set here. But certainly the, the devil is in how well countries will actually yeah. meet these ambitious targets that have been set out. And and they haven't reached an agreement on the text that most people wanted, which Elimination was... Elimination of fossil completely, fuels. Completely, you know, saying that they would phase out fossil Listen fuels. Listen to this. Rapidly phasing down unabated coal and limiting the permitting of new and unabated coal power generation. Now, it's not stopping it, it's limiting it mm-hmm. and rapidly phasing down. Now, in China, they're still opening coal-fired power stations. But you see... The old sultan doesn't have any coal. He only has oil and gas. Yes, he only has oil and gas. I mean, there, there's lots to criticise here, I think. So as you say, you know, the, the transitional fuels are very much still in there. The, the, the text around phasing out fossil fuels, which most countries were calling for, including the US and the EU, has not made it in there. Now we have text that talks about a deep, rapid and sustained reduction, um, which is not the same thing. There's no reference to methane at all. Um, which obviously is one of the, the, the greenhouse gases that has a very big impact on... And of course would affect us dramatically. And, and, and would affect us. And of course the other thing is, while it notes the need for more financial support for poorer countries, and it does recognise this idea of a, a, you know, a just a shift, a just transition, there isn't actual detail on what finance, financial mm-hmm. instruments will come into play. On, mm-hmm. on the other hand, though, it's much better than the first text that we saw. Yeah, well, it does mention accelerating and substantially reducing non-CO2 emissions, including particular methane emissions globally by 2030. But but no particular target no particular, there. Yeah. Uh, target. Transitioning away from fossil fuels in our energy systems beginning in this decade in a just, orderly and equitable manner so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Yeah, and it's good that they continue to reference the science because, you know, as I think Mary Robinson was out this morning again saying, look, the science says, and Antonio Guterres said the same thing, we need to phase these out. I mean, again, to, to take some of the positives out of this, this is the first COP where fossil fuel elimination has even been discussed. Um, and, and while we didn't get there this time, I think that the mood music is now that those special interests of the few, you know, people are starting to say, look, we, we can't tolerate this anymore. Yeah. They have to go. Accelerating emissions reductions from road transport through a range of pathways, including development of infrastructure and rapid deployment of zero emission vehicles like EVs. Um, and at the same time, we are reducing the grants on EVs and reducing the grants on solar power in this country. So Eamon is over there saying one thing and back here they're doing something else. I mean, we've a lot to do in this country and in other countries. And of course, the other thing that's come up is, I mean, a lot of the island states, the Alliance for Small Island Nations, weren't in the room when this was signed off. There's other bits of text that we still have to do around adaptation and mitigation. So, so it certainly isn't a unanimous success, but I think it's better than many people expected it would be.
Okay. We should, I suppose, thank for small mercies, etc., etc. Now, uh, we want to talk about beavers. Beavers, I know, which we don't have in this country, but which have been the subject of much discussion over the past couple of years. Actually, uh, Porig Fogarty was talking about them in the Irish Times just a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why scientists are interested in beavers particularly is because it transpires. They are indeed true climate heroes. Um, and, and the reason they're climate heroes is because they're little wetland engineers. And, and wetlands, as we've discussed before, are so important for climate change. You know, wetlands, um, we're losing them three times faster than we're losing forests, but they are such important stores for carbon but, but hang and on. water. Don't the little beavers chew trees and knock them down and their carbon sinks and they're destroying the trees? Well, actually they don't. So what they do is they nibble around the, the tree and they do take take the, the trunk of the tree, but tree, these trees regrow, so, so they really are doing forest management as well, well as wetland management. But, but what a beaver does when it goes into a new area, beavers are very ungainly on land, if you've ever seen one, but they like to be in the water, so they find a little stream and as, as you say, they, they nibble around a tree and they build a dam to try and create a little pool. And of course, what that does is it slows down the water. And by slowing down the water, that gives it time to seep out into the landscape. So you're creating damp landscapes. So, of course, when something like a fire comes along, you've created a landscape that's much, much more resilient to to water. And of course, also, if there's flooding, you know, these dams help to slow down the flow of water that might suddenly rush into areas and cause huge amounts of damage. And, And beavers' ponds seem to support a lot more biodiversity than your average pond. There's something about the way they build them with natural materials. They support lots more mammals and fish and all sorts of things. So really, I mean, they are what we call a keystone species. They have a bigger impact, Mm. a bigger positive impact than you would expect. Do we have beavers here? Did we ever have beavers here? So it doesn't look like we ever had beavers in Ireland. We, we don't have any archaeological evidence, but they are in Britain. They, and in fact, they've been reintroduced in many parts of Britain now because of this positive benefit that they have. So it has been discussed, although we normally would be very against invasive species. And we've talked about the hugely negative impact invasive species can have. Perhaps this is one that we do need to give some consideration to. I mean, we need to decide, do we even have enough trees left to support beavers? Because obviously we, we've cut down so much of our forest. But perhaps as we move to to leaving more areas as as wild areas because we know this is good for us it's good for our climate mm. targets and, and it's good for our, our ecosystem in general maybe we need to rethink having um, our little I wonder which critters would not be happy with the beaver's arrival well, again, that, that's a good question. But I mean, beavers can swim. So, I mean, even though we don't think there's any evidence they, they were here, I mean, if they've been, if they're in Britain and they were there for hundreds and hundreds of years and they're all the way across Europe, I mean, you do have to wonder if maybe a couple maybe of them did make it over. Maybe there were a few here. Yeah. Um, the, the final topic today is uh, solar energy from outer space. I know this. Well, not so outer. Not totally outer space. And this sounds totally futuristic. But I mean, coming back to COP and this drive to have huge amounts of renewable energy put in, and we are seeing massive uptake in solar energy, particularly with the new technologies where you just really need daylight. You don't need sun. I mean, China's hugely ramping up, uh, you know, their, Mm -hmm. their photovoltaic production. But, but there are limitations on these things. I mean, you need materials to make them. You need sand. Obviously, they, they you know they don't work in the night. And, and, and there is impacts on biodiversity by putting in these huge big solar farms. So, so one idea was, could we 
get solar energy from further out from space. And this is an idea that's been around for, since the 1960s and, and as I said, seems very futuristic. But the theory is that if you had a satellite in what we call geostationary orbit, mm-hmm. so basically it's 36,000 kilometres away from the Earth, but its orbit is sort of matching the rotation of the yeah, Earth. So it, it appears stationary. It appears stationary, exactly. And this would have the photovoltaic cells and it would capture the solar energy and that energy would be beamed back to Earth in the form of microwaves. And those microwaves would be captured by special receivers stations on Earth, which would be called rectennas, and they would convert that microwave energy back to electricity and we would use it. Has anyone tried this? Well, amazingly, just this year they did. So a prototype from Caltech in in the States, that they had a prototype and they were able to beam a small amount of power back to Earth. And you know, that is amazing because there's... Can you hun- direct microwaves? Then? You can, absolutely you can. Now, obviously, you'd have to avoid that beam of, of microwave energy coming down through the atmosphere. If your you- flight EI, whatever, <laughs> is going through <laughs> don't a go microwave through, beam. For sure. But what's interesting, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of times more power than we need available. Now, now the downside is, of course, the infrastructure to put this kind of thing in place, the energy that you would need to send heavy machinery up to, to space, you know, that's, that's very expensive. But we're starting to see reusable rockets as well. So I always think it's a good idea to keep our eye on maybe these really innovative new ideas that that maybe aren't for now. We're in an emergency now and we know what we have to do. But maybe to the future, you know, these are ideas that might happen. And they will work 24-7, 365 days a year. No no dawn, no no sunset. Yeah. Very good. Ruth, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Ruth Freeman, Director of Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland. Now, still to come on News Talk, Leaving Cert Science is to be made easier as continual assessment will be added to the curriculum in fifth year. Actually, Ruth, before you go, what do you think of that? We'll be talking about it later on. I think any move to continuous assessment and away from that big final exam has got to be a good thing. All of the experts in education will say that the Leaving Cert as it currently stands definitely needs transformation and we need to accommodate different kinds of learners and not every kind of learner does well in the system that we have now and putting a variety of assessment methods in is going to be helpful. And a little AI in your back pocket. (laughs) Well, that's another issue. (laughs) To beat the continuous assessment. Ruth, thank you very much for uh, joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.